life this morning, and it's good to see everyone today. Glad you're here. Missing a few folks, but it is summer, is it not? Yes, good to see Marv. God bless you, brother. Glad you're back with us. And, uh, all right, Ver, uh, Mark, uh, John chapter 5, and I'll begin just uh, reading in verse 19 through, uh, through verse 22 this morning. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity once again to come and to worship. We thank You that uh, we can open our Bibles and See what you have to say to us and to teach us what you have for us to learn. And we ask, Lord, that you would do that this morning as we expound upon these verses from John's gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, we've been looking at this section. This is the second part of verses 17 through 24 where Jesus is defending his deity to the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem. He has gone up to the feast in Jerusalem, whatever feast this is. He and his disciples have gone to the feast and he has healed a man out of all the people that were there gathered at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus chose one man to heal. That healing was would have been something quite spectacular to see. This man had been in, in pain and in misery, sick for 38 years, and now Jesus has healed him of his affliction. Jesus is making the claim that he is God's son, that he is the Messiah, He has made this claim not only as a son of God, let me rephrase that. He is not making the claim as a son of God, but as the son of God. He is saying that he is the only unique son making himself equal with God in God's person. Now that's important. Because that claim would be one that almost anyone would want proof for. To say you're something is one thing. To prove it is another. But he does prove it. This 
this statement in the beginning here infuriated the Jews because they knew that he was trying to make himself equal with God. And they wanted constantly were wanting to put him to death for this. He also spoke of the works of the Father, the works that the Father does and the works that this, that he was doing, he claims, are in tandem or in sync with one another. He has exercised divine power as the Father was exercising divine power. He is claiming to do the works that only God does, knowing only those works that the Father does. Jesus never acted, nor never acts independently of the Father. And by accusing Christ of healing this man on the Sabbath and breaking Sabbath laws, the Jews were also accusing God of breaking Sabbath laws because Jesus claims that the Father is doing the same works. This also would have infuriated the Jews. And so his works were a sign, a signal to the Jews that he was the Messiah, that he was indeed who he said he was. And making himself equal with God. So we have his person and his works. As an addendum to this, look at verse 19, where he says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. I want you to notice the verbs do, doing, does. Those verbs are present tense verbs. Which means that there is a, the works that are being done are indication of a continual action that is being done in, in present time. Now, if you'll remember back to our fit days of some time ago, we learned that God's omniscience, that is, His, His, uh, ability to be everywhere at one time, transcends time. In other words, God is present in time past, present, and future. He is there in all of those aspects and tenses of time. And so as the omnipresent one and the omniscient one, he was, Jesus is saying that he, he was doing the works of the Father in time past, time present, and he will be doing those things in time future. What is he actually saying? He's saying that when the world was created, he was there and he was the one doing the work along with the Heavenly Father. And so that reaches all the way back to creation itself. Jesus is attributing to himself the works of creation through time and into the future by making this statement in verse 19. And only God has such an ability. And so it was a claim of his deity. 
And if that were not enough, he says that there are greater works that will be done that the Father will do, that the Son will do in tandem with the Father, that will cause everyone present to marvel at. We know that that happened because we see it coming up in subsequent chapters. So he's saying that great, the greater works are coming, greater works than what was done to the man at the pool who was healed of a 38-year affliction, who rose up instantly and took up his bed and walked away. Arthur Pink writes, We apprehend the Son in consequence of his perfect knowledge of the mind and will and operations of his divine Father, will yet make still more remarkable displays of that divine power which is equally his Father's and his own such displays as will fill with amazement those who witness them. There are included, these things are included in the next illustrations of his deity. In other words, Jesus is saying there are greater things that the Father will do and that I will do, and those things will make you marvel, and here they are. And he goes right into the next one in verse 21. Notice what he says. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. So Jesus was equal to God in his person, and he was equal to God in his works. But as we continue now in verse 21, we see that he is also equal to God in his sovereign power and will, or I should say sovereign power and rights over death and life. It's very clear in verse 21. Now the first of these two greater things to marvel at that Jesus spoke of is people being raised to life from death. I mean, think of it. What is more what is more powerful than someone who can control death or bring life out of death? There's there's no greater power in the universe. Jesus is sovereign. Hear this now. Jesus is sovereign over life and death both physical And spiritual. Let that sink in just a moment. And think that every time there is a conception of a child, Jesus has power over that. He's the one that created it. Every time a person draws their last breath, Jesus has power over that death. Here, in this passage, he is speaking of giving spiritual life or bringing spiritual life from spiritual death. He's not talking necessarily about physical death, although he has power over that. We'll see that coming up in the chapters that, as we go through the next few chapters, 
But here he's speaking about spiritual death and his ability to bring spiritual life out of it. In theological terms, this is called regeneration. A regeneration. Bringing spiritual life to that which was spiritually dead. Again, this is done in perfect union between the Father and the Son. Now, this statement in verse 21 presumes two things. It presumes, first of all, that only God can raise the dead. Nowhere in Scripture do we find any angel ever raising anyone from the dead. Nowhere in Scripture do we find that Satan ever raised anyone from the dead. In fact, Satan is not an angel of light. He is an angel of death. God alone has power over life and death. In fact, Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill the body. But fear those that can kill both body and soul in hell. Fear him. That's God. That's God alone. Now, God has given certain power to Satan in this Life in this time to bring people to certain deaths, but it's God that actually controls those. He's the one that gives life and takes it. He's the one that has our breath, as the prophet said, in our hands, in his hands. And all he has to do is just let it go. And we cease to live. Our, our spirit, our soul, then departs from our body and the body lies lifeless. It's dead. The Bible is certainly teaches this. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39. See now, as he said to Moses, see now I, even I am he. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 9. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, Paul is saying, in essence, that if someone killed us and God was not finished with us, he could raise us from the dead. And which he did to Paul on the road out of, on the road to Lystra, where they stoned him to death, and he was left on the road as dead. I think he probably was dead. I think that could have very been well been the time when he was transported into the third heaven and saw things that he couldn't even describe. But God brought him back to life there on that road. Now, there are several instances in the Old Testament where God raised dead people. We find one in 1 Kings chapter 17 where Elijah raised the dead son of the widow. At, uh, at, I think it was at Zarephath. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, he raised the dead son of the Shunammite woman. But as God in the flesh, with the same power as the Heavenly Father, Jesus is able to raise the dead as well. We see him at the tomb of Lazarus in chapter 11, commanding the dead to come forth. 
We see him in Luke chapter 7 as he raises the son of the widow at Nain as they were transporting his body to be buried. Jesus came along and raised him from the dead. Now Jesus to this point in John 5, he had, he had not raised anyone from the dead in John's gospel. That wasn't something that they could look back and point to. Oh, he's talking about when he did this. That wasn't the case. So what he's saying here is, is that he, God, God the Father raises the dead and he says, I have power to raise the dead too. That's what he's saying. Certainly he had the power to raise people from physical death, but all of those miracles of raising people from physical death back to life pointed to a greater truth. And that truth was that Jesus had the power to raise people from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's what it pointed to. If I speak any more of Lazarus, I'll get ahead of myself. I'm not going to do that. John chapter 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into what? Eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Which the Son will give to you. 633. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. And gives life to the world. Verse 48. 648. I am the bread of life. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You see all of this has to do with spiritual life. It does not have to do with physical life. When he says the Father raises the dead and gives them life, he is making a parallel statement. The two phrases mean exactly the same thing. To raise up the dead is to give them life. To give them life is to raise them from the dead. They're equal statements. They're there for emphasis. Unlike the prophets of the Old Testament who were merely... God's agents in raising the dead. Jesus is God himself raising the dead. Elijah didn't raise anyone from the dead. It was God that did that. The Jews knew and believed that God could raise the dead because they believed the Old Testament And they knew that God had the power to raise the dead. But they refused to believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And therefore, portraying, to them, he was portraying the evidence of Antichrist. According to John, 1 John 2, 2 John 1. The raising of the dead to life countermands the judgment and condemnation that comes with spiritual death. 
Notice what he says. Follow on. He gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given judgment, all judgment, to the Son. The Son is said to have the same unifying will or pleasure as that of the Father to give life which redeems the dead souls of men and women, boys and girls. He gives the same power or has the same power to give life or to deny it. Now, I know that that goes counter to what many teach about our God and about Jesus Christ. You'll hear the statements. Oh, how? No, God, God wouldn't, God wouldn't kill anyone. Hmm, but He does. Oh, God wouldn't withhold salvation from anyone. But He does. You see, there's nothing here about the will of man. Plenty about the will of God. He gives life to whom he will. God wills it. God desires it. It is God's pleasure to give or to withhold life. And he does it for his own self-glory. And one may ask, how can God... Get glory from withholding life from someone who is dead in sin. He will get glory by judgment. That's what this next passage says. Notice, notice. let's carry that thought on. The Father gives life which redeems the dead, or He denies it, which ultimately means judgment of death. Death itself is the judgment. Spiritual death. Physical death is separation, which is what death actually means. It's separation of the soul or spirit from the body, physically. Spiritual death is separation of the spirit of people from God. They're separated from God. Now, they're separated initially from God. Everyone is separated from Him. That's how we're born. We're born in sin and we're born in trespasses and we have no relationship to God. We are separated from Him in spiritual death. To some, God gives life, spiritual life. And then there is a connection To God in this life that is in Christ that God gives to some. Those people are called his elect, his chosen. Those are the one he wills to give life to. Listen to what he says. Follow with me if you would. John 3 verse 35 and 36. I'm just going to substantiate this claim that Jesus makes in verse 22, or verse 21, at the end of verse 21, into verse 22. 
that those whom the whom are dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, will end up in judgment. Notice what he says. Verse 35, 335. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Hmm. Sobering verses. Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Wonderful passage that tells us that those whom God wills to live are passed. They don't go from death into death. They go from death into life. Chapter 8, verse 51. Truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Anyone who, who believes the word of God and keeps that word will never go into spiritual death. Never be separated from God. That's what he's saying. Revelation chapter 20. Turn to that one. It's quite a lengthy one. I want you to follow along with me. Chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So what is this second death? Second death is spiritual death where one is separated from God for eternity. That's the judgment. That is the actual carrying out of the judgment. Second death. The second over, over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him a thousand years. Skip down to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. In other words, no one gets away from this scene. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead, the spiritually dead, were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and hell, or Hades, gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Another sobering scene at the end of time when the judgment of God comes and the one who judges is the one who claimed to have that judgment. It is Christ. Death is that final judgment, that final separation from God in the lake of fire. That is the second death. That comes after the first death, which would be a physical one for those who do not know Christ. Those who have life in Christ are not subject to the eternal condemnation of the second death. Now, we've established that only God can raise the dead. Notice the next logical presumption of truth that comes from this. The second logical presumption is that it assumes that natural humanity is spiritually dead. This fact is substantiated in Scripture. I'll just read a few of them for you. You don't need to turn to all of them. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and in sins. Romans 6 23, The wages of sin is death. Matthew 8 22, Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Luke 15 verse 32, about the prodigal son, It was fitting to celebrate and be glad For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. There is no spiritual life. Hear me carefully. There is no spiritual life in any individual from conception. When a, when a, a new birth is, a new child is conceived, that child is dead in sin. Now that's kind of hard to think of when you look at those sweet little faces and you see, you see the, the, the little babies and everybody wants to coo over them and hug on them. They're dead in sin. They inherited it from their father Adam. Every single one. There's not, there's no exceptions. There's only ever been one exception. And that was Christ Himself. 
The spirit of man is dead and it cannot act on its own. Look, the dead can do nothing. I remember, I remember years ago hearing Chuck Swindoll on the radio say he was having a problem with this idea that, that everyone is spiritually dead and there's no life and they can't do anything for themselves and, and he, he hadn't quite crossed over that that thinking yet and so he had a friend said took him down to the mortuary to the funeral home and walked up to the casket and he said okay chuck tell him to do something he looked at him kind of puzzled and said well tell him tell him to sit up open his eyes well that's kind of foolish he said he's dead he said that's my point As real as physical death is, that's how real spiritual death is. There's no activity. There's no, there's no will to do anything. People who are dead can't do anything. They can't will themselves to do anything. They're dead. The, the will is only operable in the realm in which it is alive. So people who are living physically can will to do all kinds of things. I can will to sit in that chair, or I can will to stand here, or I can will to go home and eat dinner. I can will to do a whole lot of things because I live in that realm. But people who are dead spiritually can't will to do anything spiritual. They can't even repent. They can't believe. They're dead. I hope I'm making my point. God must act in behalf of dead humanity to bring life to them. This Jesus does in conjunction with the Father. There is no greater act of God than creating new life where only death existed. That's the greatest act God does. And He does that through His Son, Christ. This was the first of the greater things he mentioned. Jesus was equal to God in his person. He was equal to God in his works. He's equal to God in his sovereign power over death and life. And next, he is the, the great, the next greater thing is that he is equal to God in his power to judge. Only God can truly judge righteously. Put simply, Jesus Christ is the supreme judge of the universe. Now, it is true that the Bible teaches that God judges. Listen to, listen to what he says. Uh, uh, the Bible teaches it in Genesis 18, verse 25. God is the judge of all the earth. In Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel 2.10, she cried, Lord, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. In David's song of thanks to the Lord in 1 Chronicles 16, 33, Asaph sang, Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. It's also seen in many Psalms where it says God is the judge. So the point here is that God is the only one who can judge rightly, who judges righteously. 
If God is the supreme judge of all the earth, then why does Jesus say in verse 22, the Father judges no one? Do they not work in tandem? Hmm. The reason he says that is because the Father has given all judgment over to his Son. This is the testimony of the deity of Christ. That he has given all judgment over to his Son to carry out. The will of the Son and the will of the Father are in perfect harmony with the Godhead. And that the reason the Father turned judgment over to the Son is because there is a divine assurance that Christ's judgment will be the same judgment as that of the Father. And so there's no, there's no conflict. God the Father is not just sitting back waiting to see what His Son is going to do in the judgment. He knows what He's going to do. He's going to do exactly the same thing the Father would do. Think of it. If Christ had not come into the world to save sinners, judgment would be all that there would be in the end. That's all we would have. It's just judgment. No one would be saved. No one would have eternal life. Everyone would be condemned. There'd be no redemption and no salvation. For those things are only found in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He did not come into the world, Jesus said, to judge it. Although it deserved eternal judgment, He came to save the peoples of the world. John 3.17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Those words in that verse, in order that, tell of the sure, the surety of the salvation that will come to those whom God wills to give life. They, he can't fail. Not even one. That's why he says, anyone who hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. And so Paul presents this same truth. He writes in Second Thessalonians... Turn with me to these last two passages, will you? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He is presenting the truth of God's future judgment to the Thessalonian people because they were confused as to how these events are going, were going to take place. And so Paul writes to them, and he says this in verses 7 and 8. That God grants relief to those who are afflicted as well as us. They were in persecution. They were suffering. They'd had their property taken away from them. Many of them had been beaten and imprisoned and even killed. And Paul writes to them and says, God will grant you relief. To those of you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when we're going to be vindicated. We won't be vindicated here. 
I mean, we don't, we don't suffer much in this, in this country we live in. There are people being, that are suffering greatly. I read, I read an article this past week from Christians in Pakistan who are suffering every day. Every day they wake up, they don't know if they're going to live throughout the day. How would you like to go through that every day? God has given us such ease of life here with regard to persecution. He says the vindication is coming when Jesus appears with his angels in flaming fire, verse 8, in inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's who he's coming to judge. He's not coming to judge his own. He's promised not to judge us. He's promised to move us from judgment into acquittal. Paul adds a warning to this future judgment in Acts chapter 17. Last one. I'm going to close with this. He was on the, he was on in Athens and he was Made his way to Mars Hill and he's there. He saw the philosophers gathered. They were only there for one thing. That was to so that they could learn something new. And they'd heard Paul speak about this new religion. To them it was new. Back up to verse 16. Let me get there. Acts 17. Notice uh, what he says. I had to memorize Acts 17 when I was in Bible college and I I didn't keep up with it so I can't do it anymore. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So not only is he reaching out to the Jews with the gospel, but he's, he's preaching the gospel in the marketplace to anyone who will listen. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We, we haven't we've never heard anything like this before. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All he wanted to do was learn something new. Look at verse 24. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made with by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation 
of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the, uh, having determining the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, uh, which means that God is the one that assigns countries and nations and times to mankind, various peoples of the earth. Some live in the jungles, some live in the cold Arctic, some live in the cities. He allots all of that. So you are where you are today because God put you there. Verse 27. Why did he do that? That they might seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now get this, verses 29 and 30. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or imagination of man. He's not like those things. The times of that ignorance, God overlooked. But now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands people to repent. But how can they repent if they're dead? Simple answer. They can't. They can't and they won't. Not until God enters the picture and regenerates them, gives them life. Notice verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. That day is coming. People don't think it's coming, but it is coming. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that person? It is Jesus Christ himself. The Father has given all judgment over to the Son. How do we know that's true? He has given assurance to this by raising him from the dead. That's how we know. Jesus Christ rose from the dead by His own power. He has the power over life and death. He has the power of judgment. His right to judge is both a presence, in a present sense and in a future sense. We see that clearly in the Scriptures. Now, let's wrap it up. The Son of God has power to raise the dead souls of people whom He chooses by giving them life. This is in conjunction with the Father's will and desires. He also has the authority handed to Him by the Father to execute judgment on all mankind. And all of these things, both of these things, are, and all the previous acts are undeniable proofs that Jesus Christ is God. In the flesh. That he was equal with God in heaven. 
You can use these things to show people. You could go to John chapter 5 and say, look at this. Look what Jesus said here. He said this, this, this. All these things prove he's God. People don't believe that Jesus is God. You ask people, they'll tell you, oh, he was a great man. He was a prophet. He was, uh, even the, even Islam says he was a great prophet. There's a far cry in saying that he's God. But he was. And he proved it. And so in the following verses, as we go on here, we'll see, we'll see that he gives other evidences of his deity in verses uh, 23 and following. And he gives solemn warnings. These things are solemn warnings. The world, the world right now is standing at the brink of judgment. And they go on as though, as though it's never going to happen. But it will. Payday is coming. And it will happen. That's why we must, that's why we must keep on trusting, living, working, whatever we're doing for the glory of God and for the Christ who saved us and saved us and gave us life redeemed our dead spirits so that we might live in Him and with Him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You so much for this Lord's Day. Thank You for these these, uh, Scripture passages that teach us uh, of Your power, Your sovereign power over life and death, over spiritual life and death, and Your your power to judge. You are the judge. One day the nations will be gathered before you and you will divide them like a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats and judgment will happen. And only those who are on his right, the sheep, only those will find the words enter into the joy of your Lord. The others will depart having never known him who gave himself for sinners. So I pray, Lord, that you would bless this word and bless this time this morning. We love you. We praise you. We give you glory. You you alone are worthy to receive it. This we pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.